Remember when you discovered your own shadow for the very first time? Oh, mommy, daddy, what is that? And it was fascinating. You'd lift your arm up and your shadow would too. Can you believe it? And then you and your friends would try and run faster than your shadow could run, right? But that didn't work, and, and neither did jumping up and down to somehow shake that thing loose. Your shadow was your shadow, and it did what you did when you did, and that was that. You can tell a lot about someone or something by looking at their shadow. A lot, but certainly not everything. If you know who I am, then you might even recognize me by my shadow. But you can't tell the color of my eyes or the expression on my face. You can tell some things about me, but certainly not every detail. Parables are a lot like shadows. Shadows of God and what life is like in God's kingdom. Shadows of the spiritual realm being cast into real, everyday life. Like a shadow, a, a parable shows that God is real. He is there, casting a shadow. And we can tell a lot about God in the spiritual realm by looking at their shadows. Not everything, but a lot. In the Gospels, Jesus loves to use parables to teach about the kingdom of God. In the creative genius of his imagination, the listener catches glimpses of the divine shadowy glimpses, inexact looks, but in the shadow of the parables, one nevertheless discovers something of the truth casting the shadow. So when we study the parables of Jesus, we are studying shadows, shadows of God in his kingdom or reign. And we learn more about God in the spiritual realm through the shadows we are studying. Jesus, in this way, invites us beyond the shadow of the parable, beyond the shadow to God himself, to the reality of heaven, to the reality of the divine and the spiritual realm, and to the reality right now, here on earth, of life in Christ. At the end of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the children are, are wondering what happened to them and where they are, and Aslan tells the children, You are all dead, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands. The idea being that our world and Narnia are only reflections, shadows of Aslan's kingdom. And so too with parables. They are but shadows of the kingdom of God and its king. So let's take a journey from the mere shadowlands of our world and into the kingdom of God itself, using the parables of Jesus as our guide to living beyond the shadow. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18, and you will find there the parable of the unforgiving servant. The NIV calls it the merciful or unmerciful servant. And it begins at verse 23, Matthew 18, 23 through 35. I chose this particular parable to start our series on parables because it is about as clear and straightforward a parable as Jesus tells. And as we get into them, and those of you who have studied parables, you know that obvious clarity 
in parables, just like with shadows, is extremely rare. Parables, by their very nature, intend to be elusive and provocative and shadowy. They intend to invite debate and wrestling with their message over time. And while I was preparing for this series on parables, I had one of those laugh-out-loud moments when I came across this quote from Thomas Long, a very well-respected expert on preaching parables. He notes, Preaching a parable is a novice preacher's dream, but often an experienced preacher's nightmare. (laughs) And, And I laughed because that captures exactly... What I was feeling between deciding earlier this year to preach on parables this fall and the time I've gotten to now this morning. I'm still enthusiastic, but my first thought of, oh, how awesome, this will be so fun, preaching on the parables of Jesus. I can't wait, those amazing stories from the master storyteller to share it with these guys. It's going to be great. Woohoo! Well, that kind of it lasted until I dove into studying these wonderful stories of Jesus. And while still enthusiastic, that enthusiasm, my original novice preacher enthusiasm, got, it got stuck for a while as I became more and more experienced with the parables. Because of their elusive, shadowy nature, they are a real challenge to preach, especially to try to fit it into, you know, an hour-long sermon. (laughs) But uh, i got to live up to what Sage says, right? You know, it's his fault. My uh, My friend Craig Blomberg says it best. He writes, At first glance, the parables appear familiar and straightforward. But thoughtful students soon realize they have fallen into a quagmire of interpretive debates. And boy, if you studied parables, maybe you feel like I do at that statement, because my study so far of parables says, well, amen to that. And I think any serious student or teacher of parables will be tested when wading into that interpretive debate quagmire. But one reason I think it feels like a quagmire is because we make one mistake far too often. So I want to get it out there up front with our study of parables so we can keep our eye on it and be careful of making this mistake. And the mistake is asking too much from a parable. A parable is not, no matter how badly we want it to be, a complete systematic theology on any issue it just so happens to mention along the way. A parable is not intended to bring precise, detailed clarity. And this challenges our intellect in particular, which tends to demand detailed, systematic clarity. But if such precision is around whole then a parable is like a square peg. And to ask too much of a parable, to demand too much detail, is trying to cram that square peg into that round hole. And quite often, the quagmire we might feel when studying the parables is partly because we might be trying to force that parable to do what by its nature it's trying not to do. 
If we begin to feel that we're in that quagmire, check our hands and see if we have a hammer in it, because it may be we're trying to hammer a square peg into a round hole. That's why I like what John did with the shadow video introduction that you saw. I like, I like shadow to describe a parable. The root word even behind the Hebrew word for parable, which is mashal, the root word behind it, in fact, means shadow. And like a shadow, we can't see every detail of what or who is casting the shadow. As much as we'd like to, as much as we long to, and in studying the parables, it's important, even necessary, that we don't try to take more from it than it intends to illustrate. Speaking of illustrations, let me try to illustrate what I mean by telling you a different parable. There was a rabbi who lived in the first century, not Jesus, but a different rabbi, and he was known for his gift of prayer. Boy, that guy could pray. And when that rabbi prayed, things happened. And his reputation grew, and the people came from around the world to ask this rabbi, please, would you pray for me? And one day, as was typical, a woman came and asked the rabbi to pray for financial help. Her husband was out of work, and they needed money for food to feed their family. And so the rabbi did what he always did. He went to God earnestly on his face, seeking the answer in prayer. And in time, when God answered, he went and told the woman, here's what God has put on my heart through Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This is what he says, do not fear, God will care for you. The very next day, the woman came running up. Oh, Rabbi, she said. I was walking in the town square, and a complete stranger just came out of nowhere and handed me this big bag of coins, saying, God has laid it on his heart to give me this money. Oh, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. And the rabbi did what he always did when such news would reach his ears. He began to dance, and he smiled, and he pointed to heaven, and he thanked God. And this would go on all the time. And then one day, the rabbi got behind in his schedule, and he was busy, and he was late for synagogue. And as he was hurrying across the town square, a young couple recognized him and intercepted him. And they stopped him by his arm, and he looked, and he said, how can I help? And they said, Rabbi, we've been struggling with having children. We're barren and can't have kids. We so desperately want to have kids. We've heard of your reputation for prayer. Would you ask God, would you pray that we would be granted a child? And the rabbi looked at his watch, and he looked at the couple, and he looked at his watch, and he looked at the couple, and he said to them, your prayer for a child will be answered. You will have a child. And immediately, thunder sounded. Boom! And the clouds rolled back like a, uh, like a scroll. And the voice of God, Bakol, was heard by all who were there. And the voice said, Rabbi! It was not my will that this young couple have a child. But because you have said they would, I will grant them a child, but you, Rabbi, will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Boom. The clouds closed. And everybody stood in stunned silence looking at the rabbi to see what would happen. He had just lost his place in the kingdom of heaven. And you know what the rabbi did? He began to dance. And tears of joy came streaming down his face. He pointed up to heaven and he praised God. 
And the people around him looked and said, Rabbi, what are you doing? The kingdom of heaven is no longer yours. Why are you not on your face weeping with sorrow? And the rabbi said this, all my life I've struggled with serving God because of what he would give me. But now, finally, I can serve him for no reason at all. Now our first reaction, or among our first reactions, might be, Oi! <laughs> if we're Jewish especially, Oi! Or Yiddish, I guess, right? The theology of this parable is horrible! God would never keep someone from the kingdom of heaven over such a mistake. And you know what? You'd be right. But that's the nature of the parables. It doesn't really care about every single issue it mentions in passing on the way to the ones or the ones that it's trying to drive home. In fact, parables will rather gleefully stomp all over theological toes if it means that it best helps them drive home the point that they are trying to make. The point in this case of how we should love God and crave that heart that loves Him with all of who we are simply because of who He is rather than for the reward of heaven. And yes, what God does to the rabbi shocks us in the parable, and that parable wants it to shock us because that shock really drives home, doesn't it? How we're to love God just because of who He is. It doesn't intend to tell us God is like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And parables are shadows in that way. And from time to time we'll see that throughout our series. So, I chose the parable of the unforgiving servant to start our series because it's relatively straightforward. It doesn't require us as much to allow it to remain shadowy, although it has its moments. And I also chose this parable because I happen to agree with a very well-known, respected expert on parable. His name is Klein Snodgrass. It's a great name, isn't it? <laughs> and Snodgrass, I wanted to quote him just so I could say his name. And Snodgrass says about our parable this morning, the two parables in this chapter, Matthew 18, especially the parable of the unforgiving servant, in his opinion, and I share it with him, they are the most revealing and compelling of all Jesus' parables. Wow. So what better place to start than with a most revealing and compelling and relatively straightforward parable of the unforgiving servant. So as we read the parable this morning, and yes, I will get to reading it eventually, we need to go into the parables that we're studying understanding that they're like shadows. They're there merely to illustrate what's true. They don't intend to give every exact detail. They can't. Don't force them to. or You get some weird conclusions. Second, keep in mind that when studying parables in particular because they use everyday life situations, the everyday life of Jesus' parables is from the first century. And so understanding the parables first in their cultural contextual setting is especially necessary when interpreting and implying the message of, of uh, parables to a very different culture today. 
And the third thing, and then we'll read it, I'd like us to take along when we study a parable of Jesus is just sort of a personal favorite thing of mine. It's become a hobby of mine when I read Jesus' words in particular. And it's really a subcategory of that cultural contextual point. Did you know that Jesus has a wonderful sense of humor? You know, that's often overlooked or missed because, for one reason, humor doesn't translate very well across cultures and language. But also because we tend, I think, or at least I tend to take everything Jesus says um, as doctrine or theology and and our doctrine or theology is very grim and serious business. And so we're not looking for humor when we have our doctrine and theology hats on. And that's too bad because Jesus does all the time when he talks about doctrine and theology. And when we lose, what we lose, if we don't, we lose an appreciation for Jesus' very dry and very Jewish in his humanity wit. And when we lose Jesus' sense of humor, whether through cultural differences or doctrinal debate, we, we lose something valuable, it seems to me. And you all know the valuable thing that we lose. We lose the power of laughter. Laughter in even the toughest circumstances of life, right? That can help us through them. Have you experienced that power of laughter through tough times or through serious things? And Jesus, our rabbi, my friends, is a master of bringing his very wry humor even into very serious topics as he does in this parable this morning. And it's there for us to discover and delight in in his parables. Jesus twinkle in his eye smile as he tells his stories in the Gospels. It's there all over. And I don't know, that helps make me smile. And it's comforting to know somehow that we follow a rabbi who sees the humor, too, in this adventure that we call life. Okay, let's get to the parable, shall we? If you've forgotten, your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 18. You can blame John Burns for the long intro. He cut all that from the video you just saw. So it's his fault. Or maybe that makes him your hero. I don't know. Take your pick. But we're thinking shadows or square pegs and round holes remembering cultural context, and even humor as we read. So if you hear something funny, go ahead and laugh, as Jesus' first century crowd would have. Matthew 18, 18, beginning at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began the settlement, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, okay, we got to stop. There it is. It's truly sad that we lose Jesus' sense of humor across time and culture. This is funny! in its time and place. We miss it. Perhaps because we don't know what a talent is. But again, I don't think we're trained to look for it. This is serious business. This parable. Now listen. Take notes. 
And Jesus sets this parable up with a chuckle. And we miss it. The NIV's footnote helps us when it tells us 10,000 talents is millions of dollars, but even that falls way short. A talent is a unit of weight. And in short, 10,000 talents is 204 metric tons of gold, silver, or copper. That's a lot of gold, silver, or copper. 204 tons. This is more debt, more money than your average person could even imagine. You say, I don't know, Pastor, I can imagine a lot of money. But whether gold, silver, or gold, silver, or copper, let me try to give some perspective for you. One talent was about 6,000 denarii, and one denarii was about one day's wages for an average day worker at the time. So 10,000 talents, I'll do the math for you, if a worker saved her one denarii a day wage and didn't spend it on anything else, it would take 164,000 years to raise 10,000 talents. <laughs> See, now that's the chuckle. Jesus starts his story, yeah, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Yeah, go ahead, chuckle. That's cultural context chuckle right there. Maybe, I suppose if I could paraphrase it this way, I don't know if this would help with the chuckle, a man who owed him a trillion zillion dollars was brought to him. And I don't know how Jesus said it. Maybe he deadpanned it. Maybe he, I don't know. I'll bet his, well, because he's perfect, I'll bet his uh, comedic timing was just right on, right? <laughs> and you'd hear that and you'd like, what? Did he just say 10,000 talents? Did he just say a million trillion? What was it? Maybe even suspect that Jesus is having, you know, he's, he's having some fun with us. He's teasing us a bit. Such a ridiculous, impossible, ludicrous, funny number. So I, I picture Jesus with that twinkle in his eye then when he gives the next line, which you didn't think was funny either, but maybe now you will. This man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And everybody kind of chuckles. And then he says, since he was not able to pay, of course not. <laughs> Nobody could repay that debt. Since he was not able to pay, <laughs> the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And we might there be tempted to think, oh, how incredibly terrible. And yeah, while bad, especially to our 21st century ears, even here the graciousness of the master shines through. And I don't think would have surprised any of, in Jesus' audience because the master was well within his right to order the man and his family into debtor's prison, as we'll see in a minute. And so for the master to take the step of merely selling his family and possessions into slavery, where at least they would be cared for and protected as a first century slave under Torah and could even start over and purchase back their freedom in time, it's already a great act of grace. We're already impressed that that's only what he does to the guy with a million zillion dollar debt. 
If only the banks would do that for us these days, right? Jesus is merely foreshadowing the greater grace yet to come. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. There, you got it? Good job. I could end the sermon right now. Stand for the benediction. No, not yet. Everyone laughed, and they went, pay back everything. Patience. Guys asking the guy, yeah, right. Even the patience of Job wouldn't be enough patience, would it? Hey, patience of Job, you know, good one. That's good. And then while all the people around Jesus that day are chuckling, Jesus continues. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And not that unexpected yet. It's not quite the shock of the parable, I don't think. Jews were used to in a year of Jubilee. And Jews were used to in each year, the 10-day period between the Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement, a time when people would seek forgiveness even of debts. And because Jews knew often that parables, if you start with a king, that's probably God. I bet there was an expectation, especially with Jesus' previous foreshadowing that this guy is gracious. Ah, that must be the God figure in here. I bet there was an expectation that at the begging, the king would have canceled the debt. Still amazed by it, still a reaction like, wow, yeah, isn't our God amazing in showing mercy to those who ask? This Rabbi Jesus, he really knows what the God of Moses is like. That's exactly what God would do. I like this parable. The real shock of the parable is yet to come. And in fact, here it comes. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Maybe one or two months' wages compared to 164,000 years. And now here's the shocking twist in the plot. The servant's going to get a chance. The servant's going to get a chance to do what his master did for him. What does he do? Let's find out. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And everyone shook their head. You can't pay off a debt when you're in prison. You don't make money in prison. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, the Greek is outraged, and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger... His master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus, no twinkle in his eye at all, looked at his friends and disciples and said, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. In one word... 
the lesson of this parable to all who would follow Jesus is this. Forgive. In a few more words, as followers of Jesus, we must forgive. We must. And the reason we must is because God forgave us and we're trying to witness who he is. And so it's imperative that we forgive. We are forgiven to forgive. The necessity of us forgiving others is emphatically driven home in the dire way the parable ends. A clear warning of judgment for those forgiven who fail to forgive. Those disciples, those people who wandered home after this powerful story had to be thinking, as perhaps many of us are too, after hearing it this morning, whoa, I need to forgive others if I want to follow this rabbi Jesus. God is serious about this forgiveness thing. And that's the punch of the parable. Now, one of those square peg, round hole dangers that some theologians fall into, in, in my opinion. They want to mine this parable for details about judgment in hell and even the afterlife, but that's not what the parable's after. Our Catholic friends use this text to support the idea of purgatory. Say, ah, the debtor's prison where you're like there for a while until you pay your debt, that means there's purgatory. Others want to conclude that, ah, look, God has a regiment of torturers that he employs in hell. Still others want to use this parable to undermine the doctrine of eternal security because the king forgives and then he takes it back. But these are the sorts of conclusions that when measured against the balance of scripture, trying to make the parable give more detail. Detail it's not intending to give. It's reading too much from the shadow. The parable mentions those things, important topics to discuss. But it's, the parable's not trying to discuss them. It mentions the debtor's prison and torture and the master unforgiving to emphasize the point that the parable is trying hard to drive home, and that is we must forgive as followers of Jesus, and God is very, very serious about this. And the seriousness of forgiveness of others is no stranger to Matthew or to Jesus. Matthew gives us the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Debt and sin in the first century mind were nearly synonymous. And that's something. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, there's that reminder in that well-known line that God's measurement of our forgiveness is tied inextricably together with our forgiveness of others, which Matthew goes on to explain after that line in Matthew 6. Jesus has us ask God, forgive us as in the same way that we forgive others. Whoa! Our forgiveness is rather important of others. So forgive is the message of this parable, but it's not always easy, is it, to forgive? Especially the big stuff. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is so hard for us to forgive? Well, I have a theory. One answer, at least. In one word, pride. Is it pride? Pride. 
In a few more words, and I won't presume to speak for you, so I'll speak of me. Maybe you can relate. I often have a hard time laying hold of and fully embracing and surrendering to just how much God through Jesus has done for me. Just how much? For one thing, I live in a culture that tells me I have rights and I deserve things, and I've largely bought into that. And it spills over into my relationship with God because it's part of who I am. And yes, I understand that I could never deserve God's grace on my own. I understand and know that it's only through Jesus I am saved. But my own compass, my own sinful nature that I still struggle with, my own self-image struggles with accepting and maintaining an appreciation of just how far a distance that God through Jesus has lifted me. My, My orientation somehow is tempted to feel at a heart level, at a being level, that while Jesus and Jesus alone saved me, the distance he saved me is, oh, you know, it's about this much. Because after all, I'm not so bad. I would save me too. And that pride, it constantly threatens to keep me from a full and constant appreciation that God through Jesus lifts me up, not about this much, but that God lifts me up, as that great theologian Buzz Lightyear says, he lifts me up to infinity and beyond. The distance on my own between God and me is hopeless but for his grace. It's not this tiny little gap that a cross fills in. There's like no end of the bridge for the cross to hang on. I'm nowhere in sight. It's hopeless. I'm doomed without Christ. Doomed. I'd have to work every single day for 164,000 years to repay the debt, Bible says. In other words, I'm utterly, hopelessly, impossibly doomed. I have rights before God? Are you kidding me? I don't have any rights simply on my own. None. Not one, not half a one. Biblical scholar Jeremiah on this particular parable has this to say about rights. Woe to you if you stand on your rights, for God will then stand on his and see that judgment is executed. Whoa! And that's exactly what this parable warns. And when I struggle with embracing at a heart, a being level, just how infinitely amazing is God's grace to me. When I struggle with that and feel like it's oh about this much, interestingly enough, that's the time that I struggle with forgiveness. How dare 
they do this to me? How dare they? To me? Me! Conversely, those moments in my life where I can, by God's transforming grace, lay hold of all that Jesus has done for me, when that truly gets in me and begins again when I allow it to in humility to transform my prideful heart more and more into Jesus' complete and utter humility, when that happens, forgiveness for others flows. I don't know why it is. It's so hard for me. Is it hard for you too to live in that first aha moment if you had that deep changing broken moment when you first knew Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you were just overwhelmed that nothing you could do, that you were absolutely doomed. And you couldn't do anything about it. And God reached down and he picked you up to infinity and beyond to live forever with him. And it's like, wow! Oh, wow! See, and my kids learn to look for those wow moments that dad is feeling when they come to seek forgiveness. Peter is especially intuitive. Say, Dad, I have a question. And he'll judge by my response. If it's while I'm still looking down, yeah. He'll go, never mind. <laughs> if I turn to him with a smile and say, yeah, Pete, what? Hey, Dad's in the wow, amazing grace moment. You know, and then that's when they'll choose to tell me that they ran over the sprinkler head with the mower. See, because when we're in that moment with people, no matter what they've done, and I know I'm talking about some very ugly things, so it's relative. But when it's infinity and beyond, when we're in that moment of what God has done without for us, oh man, does he love us. We're in that moment and someone comes to us and, you know, I really would like to beg your forgiveness. It's done, you're forgiven. <laughs> and when we don't react that way, as I almost don't all the time. It's like four negatives in there. (laughs) Is it because of pride? You should be sorry. After all, it's me that you did the stew. (laughs) The shock of the parable of the unforgiving servant is that the man forgiven of an impossible debt didn't forgive a tiny one. It's shocking, and the parable successfully, even by stepping on theological toes, makes us feel that. How could he not? And right when we're feeling amazed at what that man did, or didn't do, Jesus steps in right there and he says, that's exactly how God feels. Incredulous shock when we likewise fail to give forward God's forgiveness given to us. Oh. And the shadow of that reality of God's justice that some people want to point out as wrathful and condemning and a bad God. The parable sets that shadow of, well, of course he would be indignant 
about that. I came across an interesting story just yesterday, and then I'll let you go. Last night, Major League Baseball, did you hear, or maybe you saw, allowed Pete Rose to step foot on a Cincinnati Reds infield for the first time in 21 years. Did you see it? Last night was 25 years to the day that Charlie Hustle, Pete Rose nicknamed because he played so hard, hit number 4,192, making him the undisputed hit king. As many of you know, Rose was banned from baseball for betting on games while managing the Reds. The title of the article reporting the story caught my eye. It was called An Evening of Forgiveness. It took Rose a long time to admit he bet on a game. A long time. I wonder if he didn't struggle with pride too. But he finally admitted he was wrong. And he finally humbled himself. And people suspect he's not really humble, but... Baseball still hasn't forgiven him, haven't reinstated him. In light of all the steroid stuff going on, what he did suddenly seems to pale to me. But, but for a night at least, Rose was on the field he loves again. And this quote from Rose in the article stood out to me. Rose said this, I think it's made me a better man admitting my mistakes. I was absolutely wrong. I wish I could change it, but I can't. He then goes on to say what he wouldn't give to be back in the wonderful world of baseball. The author of the article then concludes the story with this tender line. Saturday night, he can at least pretend. Do you struggle with forgiveness? If, like me, you do, ask yourself this probing question. Do you struggle with pride? Do you yet know the full measure of what God has done for you? My guess is we don't when we refuse to forgive. And it's get on our knees time before God and beg him for humility, humble ourselves, beg him for a full and complete appreciation again for all that he has done, because when he gives or renews that within us, our struggle with forgiveness fades. And in Pete's words, we become better people. But unlike Rose, we don't have to pretend we're in the kingdom of heaven. When we humble ourselves to forgive, we truly are in the reign of God, and not just for a Saturday night forever. And the humility that such forever grace from God creates in us well, enables us to eagerly forgive others. Now, one important caveat. Please hear me. The message of this parable is not aimed at those who struggle to forgive, but keep on trying. If you're struggling to forgive someone, and it's just so hard, and, but it's okay. God understands that it's difficult. Don't leave this morning thinking, oh my God, I've been trying to... Forgive him for what he did to me for years, and I just heard that if I if I can't, I'm going to be tortured in hell. <laughs> no, that's overreading the shadow. 
He knows it's difficult, especially the big stuff. It can be really big. I know, and God knows, and it may well require professional help and Christian community help for you to get there and, and inner healing even from the Holy Spirit to get there, and that's okay. God will honor your dedicated effort to forgive. But we step into the aim of this parable if our attitude toward forgiving others is, I don't care. To heck with that and to heck with them. If we refuse to even try or we give up trying, if that's any one of us, then this parable packs an important message. A message. As followers of Jesus, we must forgive as God forgave us. Is there someone that you need to forgive today? I'll bet there is. Is there someone you need to forgive today? If so, please realize the great urgency of doing so. And try, won't you? If you haven't yet or if you've given up, try again, so help you God, and keep trying. And he will help you by transforming your heart, even if it takes a lifetime, to one that eventually will gladly say what the servant should have said. Oh, I'm so glad you have that debt to forgive. I forgive you because let me tell you what our master did for me. And then you can even quote Buzz Lightyear if you want. I forgive you to infinity and beyond. Come on, Woody, let's go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us feel this morning and every day that urgency to forgive. Help us to forgive. And Father, if it's pride that gets in our way ever, take us back, Father, to that moment in time when we first knew you. Wash us again in the blood of Jesus. Renew in us a re-anointing even of the Holy Spirit. Renew in us just that joy of our salvation over how high that you've lifted us up to infinity and beyond. And may that joy, Father, bubble over in us and over others with forgiveness. A forgiveness that can say, no matter the circumstance, together with your Son, Father, forgive them. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? I found this in Colossians from the Apostle Paul. Interesting. Paul picks up on our lesson and this parable exactly. Listen to what he says as we go. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you next week. God bless you all.